COVID-19 pandemic is a major challenge for hospitals, health systems, and other healthcare-related organizations worldwide. Let's talk about health system response with two talented leaders right here on this special COVID-19 episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm privileged to have the opportunity to use this platform to educate and inform you, the Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with those you care about. I'm committed to regularly publishing episodes related solely to the COVID-19 pandemic. These episodes will always be free of corporate sponsorship and advertising of any kind. This is solely about education and information as a public service. Please share far and wide if you feel these episodes are a valuable approach to the virus. And remember, the show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-9. Now for my disclaimer, all information in these episodes about COVID-19 reference the most up-to-date information I can access, as well as personal opinions and reactions from yours truly and my guests. Please note that the situation is changing by the moment, and any information shared in the course of my COVID-19 episodes may not apply once that data has been updated, expanded upon, or contradicted by the ongoing collection of evidence-based scientific and medical information. Please also note that nothing shared in the course of any Nurse Keith Coaching COVID-19 podcast is intended for diagnosis or treatment. Please consult your healthcare provider, the CDC, the WHO, your local Department of Health, or any evidence-based resource you trust. And if you hear or read something I have shared that appears to be erroneous, please send an email to me at keith at nursekeith.com with any evidence or data you can share so that I can learn and post a public correction. Thank you for understanding. Stay safe and keep informed. Now, I am so pleased to welcome Mary Beth Graham, MD, Professor of Medicine with tenure at the Fredert and Medical College of Wisconsin. And she is also the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control since 2002. We are also welcoming Susan Huerta, and she is the Vice President, Enterprise Quality, Patient Safety, and Performance Improvement at Fredert and Medical College of Wisconsin. I thank you both for being here. And Susan, let's let's lead off with you. So in these days of the pandemic, how did you start to prepare such a large health system to recognize and treat patients with coronavirus? What were the first steps? Um, I think initially, like every hospital and, and, and system, we were a little unsure. We got certainly a, a heads up that something was coming this way in, in February. And I will also say that our we are very, very lucky in that our infectious disease and uh, laboratorians are tuned in to both international and national concerns around um, infectious disease. So we started, I would say, in late February, really looking at what would it mean to, to see this virus in the United States and what would it mean um, in Wisconsin, which is not a hub for major travel, despite what we think about Milwaukee, uh, but we're very, very close to O'Hare International Airport in Chicago. So we see travelers. We have certainly seen and been prepared on a regional level for um, multi-drug resistant organisms and certainly prep for 
caring for patients that have special pathogen needs. So from that alert really came this sort of sense of, does this look and feel like some of those other things we've responded to? And I think the initial um, heads up was, well, you know, maybe it's not so bad, and then maybe it's bad, and, and then we started stepping back and say, what does it mean for our health system? We were certainly Ebola-ready. We were one of 55 organizations nationwide that was recognized by the CDC to be able to handle uh, a significant infectious disease, and so it was hard not to use those same lessons learned with a virus that doesn't behave the same way as a hemorrhagic disease. And so I think initially, as we started working through what is the triage, talking to our um, infectious disease experts as well as our clinical staff to really differentiate what does this look like. And the difference also being it's not one or two patients, but the possibility of hundreds of patients showing up in our health system I, uh, potentially at the same time. So we started off with how do we identify these folks? What are the triage questions that we ask in the ED? What are the questions that we ask in our ambulatory departments? And then how do we identify symptoms that sound a little bit like flu, but not a deeper cough, something that's more persistent? And it's a nuance that was, I think, difficult at the beginning to get people to understand. I am sitting with our flu expert um, who is actually renowned for this, who helped us think through what is the difference in how a patient might present this way. And, and we made our, our attempts at getting our staff ready. I will also be honest that it was difficult to make that nuance in our emergency departments when we're trying to triage patients through. But initially it was symptomatology, Somebody comes in with a travel history, which is where we hung our hat initially, um, and then that travel history started to reflect other states as opposed to other nations. So how do you then put out the word that while that travel history might be Washington State or California or New York, and what does that do? And eventually it was really just the symptoms. So I think we went through all of those same stages really through mid-March of are we going to stick to travel and symptoms and say here's a, a person under investigation, are we going to recognize that it's a community spread and the travel questions aren't going to help us. So getting units ready, getting nurses ready to respond, getting doctors ready to respond and treat, and then really trying to figure out what is that key question that we're going to get from somebody's history. Those were our challenges early on, and I don't think we were unique. That makes a lot of sense that you were not unique, though everyone was scrambling. And I'm assuming you were speaking with plenty of people around the country as you all grappled with what was being presented. And so, Mary Beth, turning to you now, as an infectious disease specialist who's been around a long time since deep into the AIDS epidemic back in the 80s and 90s, what was the first thing that came across your, your vision or your desk when COVID-19 began to emerge that told you something was different? What was the first sign to you? Well, my husband actually mentioned to me something he had seen on the internet about a new pneumonia virus that was spreading in China. And the first words out of my mouth to him, I said, well, you know, it's a coronavirus. Um, because it just made sense. Having lived through SARS and having lived through MERS mm -hmm. um, and what was being described, it was, this is just going to be another coronavirus. I will admit, initially, um, 
because of the paucity of information that was initially coming out, because having gone through SARS and MERS and not seeing it move outside of those countries, so really not seeing it move outside of Asia for SARS, really not seeing it move that far out of Saudi Arabia or mm -hmm. MERS, um, there was initially, I will admit, a little bit of the, the sense of concern or urgency wasn't there right at the beginning, at least for me. And I think for a number of my colleagues, we weren't because we were thinking back. Then as we watched, you know, basically we're getting more of the numbers in. It was like, okay, this is different. This is very different than what happened before. And I think that, you know, one of the things that took us by surprise too not so much. I mean, it. It thinking back to two thousand nine H one N one. If you if you remember then and seeing what this the CDC changed recommendations on two thousand nine H one N one kind of frequently. And at the beginning of this, that was the thing that was difficult for our infection control program was what exactly are we supposed to be doing with regards to personal protective equipment? What are we supposed to be doing? Um, are we supposed to be using negative pressure rooms? Is this airborne? Or is this droplet like other respiratory infections? And at the beginning, there was a lot to sort out because the information was changing. And I don't blame CDC. I mean, they were learning about this too, but it was just things were changing. Our targets were moving. Um, I mean, I'm very lucky to have an incredibly skilled group of infection preventionists with whom I work, and they were able to put together um, a beautiful initial, initial action plan that we could follow. But then it kept being changed because CDC kept changing little pieces of it. And then as we rolled into it and we realized, okay, this is something that's going to be much different than what we've seen before. It, and showing up in the middle of influenza season when you have mm. everybody coming in and the symptoms potentially being similar, um, it, I think it, you know, it made it more difficult at the beginning to try to sort those things out in terms of what exactly are we, you know, what are we seeing? Um, and then as we went forward, we learned more about this. But I mean, as we went forward with the virus, it's, every different manifestation can show up with this virus from totally asymptomatic to just a sore throat to somebody who's short of breath who ends up in an ICU the next day. So that's the thing as the progression of this that's changed so dramatically. I would add one thing to what Mary Beth is saying. In, in those, that initial phase with CDC doing as many changes as they yes. did, I think there was a little erosion of confidence in infectious infection prevention um, professionals, that it's like the hospital doesn't know what they're doing, they keep changing. And in an effort to get it right, I think that confidence got eroded mm -hmm. a little bit and we had to earn it back. And I think part of what Mary Beth will talk about managing the disease kind of helped do that, but it was pretty tough at the beginning. That sounds like a very challenging situation to be in. And I can only imagine the scrambling that had to be happening at every level, not just symptom management, but also responding to the changes from the CDC, then responding to the faulty tests that were first distributed from what I understand. And some of the frustration I was hearing at the time where we were offered tests from the WHO, but we decided to release our own. And then there seemed to be a real testing debacle for a while from the federal level. Well, one of the things about testing was um, we have a world-class, Wisconsin Diagnostic Lab is absolutely 
absolutely fabulous. Um, mm. And they were ready, willing, and able to have their own, basically do their own test here, which is what a lot of other countries did. So when people go and say, well, they're able to test this many people in Korea or this many um, cases here, at the beginning, we were limited to when we would test, our test had to go to the CDC, it had to go to the state, and then it had to go to the CDC. Exactly. And then we had to wait for those results to come back. Our lab, once they were able, given the green light by the FDA, that they could do this, um, our lab was up and going with a test. And I think that we're in a very um, fortunate position here with regards to our ability to test and to screen people. It's not that way nationwide, though. There are many smaller communities with smaller community hospitals. They still depend on the state sending it out. Um, they have to wait for results coming back. Our results are back within four to six hours. And then you- Four to six hours? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, running, they're running multiple runs during the day. Um, and so we can get results back within four to six hours, but it, that's not the norm for a lot of, pla for a lot of places, which- again, makes it confusing as when everybody talks about we need more testing, more testing in order to open up the country, more testing isn't always available at every single point. That's a very good point. And, and I'm going to add just a little something else about testing in terms of ability to throughput the, the test. We did run into a situation where the swabs were somewhat limited and our ability to commit to testing, we didn't overcommit. Um, certainly some of our academic colleagues around the nation are, are looking at capacity. I know Cleveland Clinic has some huge capacity, but some limitation based on some reagents and some um, swabs, which always becomes that kind of supply chain. We're vying for the same things to, to get these tests run. And we are very lucky in that our system has been fortunate to be able to um, procure supplies as, as we've needed. But there were a couple of times where we said, you know, we're going to stratify who gets tested and we're going to do that with our infectious disease um, uh, colleagues to say, okay, here, here's the most at risk. Um, then we had to, we were able to open it up to first responders, but it was not initially available for everybody based on, again, our ability to safely make sure that we could both get the tests, get the swabs, have the reagent, and be able to run those tests. Again, we have an exceptional lab. There's no question about it. We are fortunate. Mm -hmm. But all of those factors played in for us as well. And I think partnering with um, clinical and laboratorians to really identify where do we want to target so that we get patients cared for, um, always concerned about employee or, or staff exposures and, and knowing that that was a priority as well. So um, I, I'm watching Mary Beth nod because we, we went through this stratification with our occupational health to say we need to keep the frontline staff safe. Mm -hmm. um, we need to know what an exposure risk is. We worked with our infectious disease, uh, our infection prevention specialist, as well as our occupational health to say, is there some way we limit exposure with PPE and using it differently? So we went to a, a complete masking and face shield early um, to both uh, prevent the exposure and as well as uh, kind of make sure that we are are uh, appropriately protecting people and frankly not having to test everybody so that we were saving those tests. And now we have much more expanded capability and a quicker turnaround uh, for those tests. 
That's great. Now, when I hear from people, nurses contact me all the time who work in ICUs and ERs and med surge and telemetry units all over the country, and they're coming to me with their fears. Some of them are at high risk themselves. They might have asthma, bronchitis, COPD, et cetera. And then they have vulnerable family members at home, maybe children with lupus or disabled spouses or other family members. And one of the things I hear from a lot of providers, especially the nurses who reach out to me, is that one, and I've read essays by doctors in this in this regard too, they feel like pariahs when they go home. They're not quite sure what to do when they get home to make their relatives and family members feel safe. And they also feel that they're not exactly sure how much they need to self-quarantine from their families. And they're not sure they're being adequately protected at work because they're not sure exactly what they need in all circumstances. Now, the nurses who work in ICU tell me they feel protected and, you know, things come up around aerosolization. If you're doing nebulizers, there's all sorts of stuff that keeps coming up that people are grappling with. So I guess this might go to Susan or maybe Mary Beth, I'm not sure whichever one of you wants to take it, is that how do you advise your staff in terms of how they are protected and then how, how they go home to their families. What are you saying to them? So I'm going to start and then I'm going to let Mary Beth kind of finish off about fears. But um, I think the fears are, uh, it's a scary disease and it's in our community and our friends are concerned. And, and how do you even go shopping for groceries without feeling fearful of, of what you're touching. So, so it's that sphere. I will tell you that um, certainly in our ICUs, we have um, also dedicated non-ICU units in each of our hospitals in the system. We're looking at appropriate PPE. And certainly a persistent concern has really been, I want the PPE I want. And Several weeks ago, I kind of had this conversation about conserving PPE and knowing that actually a face mask is really quite protective. In fact, there are studies that show that that nice little molecule stays on the outside of the mask. It doesn't go to the inside. This is like wonderful news because it's a moisture barrier and it's a droplet. And so it fits in there and adding that eye protection is pretty important. But when you see people out in hazmat suits and, you know, giant respirators out there and you think, well, is this really enough? And it, it is a powerful protection for the average person who's working with somebody who is not having an aerosolizing procedure. These are powerful things. It's just how do I get comfortable with it? So I, the conversation that I had is that we're not ever going to be able to give people all the PPE they want, but I promise you we give them all the PPE they need and they need it to wear it the way it's recommended. And I don't know how to get them more comfortable, but to say that we're looking at all of the evidence that says masks, face shields, gloves, powerful PPE for that patient who's presenting and maybe they're asymptomatic, so they're not really coughing at you. You're not having an aerosolizing procedure. Now that ups the ante when, they're, when you're in a COVID isolation room and now there's a gown and if there's an aerosolizing procedure, there's, a, there's an N95 or equivalent type of protection there. I think the other thing is just be smart when you go home. So if you're, if you're nervous about going home, bring a change of clothes to work. Bring it in a clean bag, 
change your clothes. We offer shower facilities if somebody wants to shower before they leave. Put your clean clothes on, put your uniform or your work clothes in the bag, and take it to the laundry room when you get home. It's just really being sensible about, I don't want to carry this in the house. I'm going to change my clothes. And it's a great way to do it. And, and having shower facilities available, great way to, to make sure that when I'm going home, I'm going home in a condition that protects my family. And, and I'll let Mary Beth talk about the risk to family. So I keep going back to the issue. The, the predominant way this virus is spread is through respiratory droplets. And so when you think about respiratory droplets, um, if you put your hand at least even like a foot away from your mouth, you can still feel a little bit of that, you know, of your voice, of your spray. And so if somebody coughs or sneezes, you may get, you know, droplets that will go out three, six feet, you know, away. But that's the predominant way that, that the virus is spread. And when I talked to people, you know, again, it's many of our providers have gone to wearing scrubs, which is totally fine. Again, they come in, they put on scrubs, they take them off, you know, and then put on their street clothes to go back home in, um, and then washing it, you know, just general washing is fine. Really, the main way that I think about it, the, the New England Journal article that talked about how long the virus can live on certain surfaces caused a huge amount of angst because it talked about cardboard, how long it can live on cardboard, how long it can live on plastic, how long it can live on, you know, on, on other surfaces and how long can it be in the air? That's very true. It, it caused a huge amount of angst where people are afraid to bring their mail in from outside. You know, they, but I, I turn it around a different way. Even when we're in, you know, pre-COVID-19, this is the way I approached life. If I touched commonly used surfaces, I would always want to make sure that I did hand hygiene afterwards and make sure I'm not touching my face. Because the way then you were going to get it is if you are touching those objects and then go up, touch your nose, touch your mouth, touch your eyes, do, some, do something like that, being very cognizant of the fact that doing hand hygiene, whether it's alcohol, hand sanitizer, or washing your hands before you touch your face, is the absolute 100% best way to prevent spread of something that may be on a surface to you. So on the news this morning, I thought it was interesting. They were talking about you bring in the mail, you should put it on, if you put it on a surface, you have to disinfect that area. If you, you know, take it out, then you have to wash your hands immediately afterwards. Again, I'm not going to tell anybody that they're wrong for doing that, but there have been increased reports. This is just on the news today too, about increased reports of calls to the poison center because people oh have been overusing and basically using or getting exposed to some of our, to bleach or some of our other disinfectants. Okay. The other thing that was, um, that I've read about is that you need to be careful. You shouldn't be washing your food in Lysol. You can use you can use like soap and you know you can, you can use like a nice hand soap and water to wash off your food or wash off a a food object if you really are concerned about bringing something home, but not using Clorox wipes or Lysol wipes or something else like that because it can leach into the leach into the food. And then I tell people think about it this way: it's you need the support of your family at, your, at home. I mean, you're out there, you know, for nurses that are going in, our nurses in our ICU are phenomenal. I mean, they are absolutely phenomenal. 
when the first time I went into the unit, um, after this started, I was on consult service and I went into the ICU and I was kind of nervous about going in because I didn't know what the, what it would be like in there, what the mentality would be. It was fabulous. Those nurses, they were supporting each other. They had figured out how they'd move the patient's beds up close to the door. So all of the IV poles were outside the door so they could manage all the IVs rather than going in and out. They still could communicate with their person, with their patient that was right there at the door. They would go in when they needed to go in. The attitude was absolutely phenomenal. And I looked at it and I go, you guys are brilliant. I mean, this is absolutely brilliant. And they figured out a way to keep themselves safe. They figured out a way, you know, that the patient is still safe so that they're getting the care that they need. And the, the calm, I think at the beginning, there was much more angst about this, but there is definitely a confident calm in that ICU and also on the regular units. So where our patients are in our regular inpatient units, it's exactly the same. The nurses are very, very good at, you know, in terms of going in, you know, taking care of their patients, and it's just that pervasive calm. But when they go home, you know, again, what they need to do, I'm totally fine with the changing the clothes, you know, throwing everything in the washer, but you need to be around your family. I've heard some people say, well, I can't see my family. And I'm like, that for your mental health, they need to see you and you need to see them. You know, this is this is important. Absolutely, and I'm glad. So, so uh, Keith, I want to ask Mary Beth about the um, potency of that virus that's left on surfaces. So, the fact that I can detect it in a lab days later is it really potent enough to to sort of attack me. And I actually had a friend saying, what do I do with my banana? And I said, boy, by the time you take the skin off the banana, there's no COVID inside. Wash your hands. So I'm going to ask Mary Beth about how potent that is. (laughs) So, I mean, that's actually very important because when we look at, let's take it to a different level. Patients after they've recovered from COVID, it's been shown in numerous studies over and over again, totally asymptomatic. Absolutely. All your symptoms are gone. You're feeling fabulous. All right. I swab your nose. I can still find virus on that PCR test. And then the question is, which nobody knows, is it genomic material and a dead virus that can't do anything? Is this actually infectious to somebody else? Nobody, nobody seems to know. So just because you can find genomic material, because that's all they're checking for, as far as I know, they weren't growing the virus off of those surfaces. They were swabbing and then doing the PCR to see if they could detect it. Doing on the hospital here, I do a lot of uh, transplant infectious diseases. And in my transplant patients, I will sometimes see patients swab positive for rhinoviruses, common cold virus, hmm. month after month after month. You know, you'll just see it's positive. Or I've seen some patients persistently positive with influenza, absolutely no symptoms at all. Now we still isolate them. I mean, that's we do in the hospital, but. Again, just because the genomic material is there, does it actually mean that it is an infectious virus? So I, I want people to be logical. I don't want people to be paranoid. Yes. I want the new normal for people to think twice about hand hygiene or touching their face. The new normal. I want people to think about commonly used surfaces 
So if you're going to the grocery store, I love the fact that they have those wipes that you can wipe down your grocery cart. That I'm hoping remains as a new normal. Because for the other respiratory viruses we worry about every year, with influenza, with the other human coronaviruses that cause the common cold, with mm -hmm. rhinovirus, et cetera, mm -hmm. that's a way that we will help protect people from getting those. You know, overall, there are a lot of lessons that we're learning right now on the spread of a viral respiratory illness that I will say over and over again, I hope people don't forget these lessons learned. That's that's a very good point. And I want to come back to Susan a little bit around le lessons learned around safety. But Mary Beth, I have, I have a multi-pronged question for you here, and I'll just kind of blurt it out, and then you can pick it apart <laughs> as you like. So around symptomatology, you know, we, we were looking at the fever and dry cough at first. That was, then that's been the cardinal symptoms that we've been looking at. And then we decided or we started to hear that there were people presenting with, let's say, diarrhea and abdominal pain, but not at first fever and dry cough. Or we also, I heard tell of people having this strange loss of the sensations of taste and smell that at first was perplexing to many, to many people. And then there was this whole issue of, is it fecal oral or not as well? So what is, what's your feeling about all these different aspects of the symptomatology that's been emerging? Because I'm still rather confused about it myself. So everything you said are different manifestations that have been reported on the presentation. Okay. In fact, the thing that's interesting on the cruise ships, when they went through and did swabs on patients from the cruise ship, I think it was 14% or something like that um, that were totally asymptomatic. I mean, had nothing. And then they were swab positive. So you'll get everything from the asymptomatic individual up to the individual who has that, I mean, the, the shortness of breath. The taste and smell one is really intriguing. It's, we haven't found that universally in our patients, although I've read a lot online where that is a it's a, not an uncommon symptom that people have experienced with this, but I think that's also why there's such a push and why so many people are saying we need to test. We need to have more testing done. So for certain things, I mean, does every person in the United States need to be tested? I don't think so, because what do you do with that information? Because if I'm, if I'm negative today, does that not mean I might not be in contact with somebody in the next couple of days. That's a fair question. <laughs> so, so, so I, don't, I don't know what I do with that. But strategic testing for certain things. So in our hospital system, strategic testing, everybody who gets admitted through the ER, so that again, so that we have an idea about, you know, if somebody's coming in with these symptoms, testing them. Testing people before they go to the operating room because of those aerosol generating procedures, the intubation that they may require, again, to give our, you know, so the surgeons can, again, go about their procedures. There are definite areas where testing is going to be incredibly important, you know, to get different areas open. How many elective procedures have been put off where patients really need to have their procedure done and having their basically getting that screening done before they have their elective procedure done. So again, testing the masses with the PCR test, I don't see a reason. 
in the long run, when you turn to antibody testing, right now there's a lot of clamoring for antibody testing. Well, again, my question is, what do you do with that? Because with the antibody testing, antibody testing is going to be really powerful to go back and do what we call zero surveys. So if you want to, one of the classic um, examples and the one that I remember reading about years ago that I thought was fascinating was when West Nile virus first showed up. And everybody was freaked out. And the people who showed up with West Nile encephalitis, and if you saw a dead crow, you were freaked out because you saw the dead crow. And so then they looked at um, New York and they were, did zero surveys and they found it was just a huge amount of population was antibody positive for West Nile, but only something like 15% of people of those who tested positive had any type of symptoms and only a small fraction of those actually had the, the severe encephalitis. So one of the things that will be very interesting in the future is doing the antibody testing to actually get an idea of really what's the denominator. I mean, as we're looking at, we can sit there and say this percent of people who are presenting are COVID-19 positive. So at our hospital, Last week, if you looked at the number of people who were tested last week and the number of positives, it came out, it's like 16%. But that's of the people who were tested. It doesn't give you a denominator how many people are not getting tested. Right. So, and those people who are asymptomatic. So we don't have that information. So there, the one place where I do need the antibody, um, and this is something we've been working with Wisconsin Diagnostic Lab on is we have been using convalescent serum from patients who have recovered from COVID-19 as a potential therapy. Right. We really don't have defined drugs right now to treat this. There's a lot of conflicting literature that's out mm -hmm. there. Much of it is not uh, from controlled trials. Much of it is not peer reviewed. It just shows up as preprints online and you read it. But what we do know from infectious disease is that for many infectious diseases, it was shown for SARS, it was shown for MERS, it was shown for West Nile virus, it's been shown for influenza, that in the vulnerable time, so if this is a new virus that somebody's being exposed to, and before that person can actually develop protective antibodies, so after we're exposed to an infectious agent, one of the arms of the immune system that gets turned on is that humoral immune system to make antibodies, and then antibodies go and glom on to the infectious particle and essentially kind of stop it in its track. So rather than the virus being able to go to more and more cells in your body, the, the antibody gloms it up so you may get a milder infection. So the theory is by giving convalescent plasma, and they should have antibodies in that plasma, Two patients who are especially in that first two weeks of illness, you can alter the course of the disease. So that's a project that we've actually started here at Freighter Medical College. My big problem is, though, I need a test to be able to tell me how much antibody is actually in that serum. Because what's been published is that people who've had mild disease may not make much antibody. Those who've had more severe disease may make more antibody. And I want to make sure that the product, the plasma that we're giving people, actually has a good level of antibody that is actually going to benefit them. 
Right. Otherwise, you're not necessarily getting the bang for your buck, giving covalescent plasma without many antibodies in it. Exactly. And that's the biggest problem that we're running into here. Because, I mean, a lot of places have been using the convalescent plasma, and we're going on hope right now. I want to go on science. And so for science, I need the science, but I love our lab. Our lab is working on this, and we should have this uh, ability to be looking at these antibody titers within the next week or two. Well, that's that's exciting, and I hope that happens in other facilities. And one more question about testing, and then I want to, I have a question for Susan about safety. Now, we hear reports, I hear all sorts of numbers about false negatives. I hear 30%, 40%, 28%, 35%. What do you understand about the false negative issue? So the first reports, and I had to find this, because I was like, where in the world does a 30% false negative thing come from? Mm-hmm. It came from an article from China where their definitive diagnosis of COVID-19 was the appearance of a chest CT. So what they did was they used the chest CT as their gold standard to make the diagnosis. And then if people had a negative swab in the setting of an abnormal appearing chest CT, then they said it was a false negative because for them, everything was COVID. Now, granted, they were treating patients for community-acquired pneumonia at the same time that they were using a number of different types of medications for COVID. They weren't also not treating for the standard treatments like a third-generation cephalosporin and a macrolide for a community-acquired pneumonia. Um, and then the patients, you know, as they got better, they just assumed that it was If it looked like it, it had to be COVID. So that's where the problem came in, and that's where that 30% comes from. If we look at our testing sensitivity, our testing sensitivity really depends on two things. Number one, how well you do that swab. Because the nasopharyngeal swab, if, if you got a nasopharyngeal swab and it didn't bother you or you didn't feel like somebody was trying to do a brain biopsy on you, (laughs) then they didn't do it right. I mean, you really have to get that swab back far into the nasal pharynx back. I mean, even going back toward the oral pharynx Mm -hmm. in order to get to the right cells. Yeah, I've heard it feels like a brain biopsy and it should feel like that. (laughs) Exactly. So the thing is, is that a we can see false negative tests if people aren't doing the swab correctly. When I've watched on TV and seen some of these drive-throughs where people are just doing the swab in and out, I'm like, that's not, that's not the way you do it. You tilt mm. somebody's be- head back and you go back and you twirl it around and it's not comfortable and it's not a two second procedure. So that is concerning. There also is, um, data out there that potentially a lower respiratory specimen might be a bit more sensitive. So getting a sputum or if somebody gets a bronchial alveolar lavage, that specimen might be more sensitive than a nasopharyngeal swab. We see this sometimes too on influenza where we'll do an NP swab and it's negative, but we'll see it on a BAL. But I think that that's the exception and not the norm because by the time patients are usually symptomatic and we see them in the hospital, that nasopharyngeal swab, if done appropriately, should be positive. And according to our lab, when they're doing the PCR, they look at the cycle numbers. And so when you do PCR, it's like they'll run 35 cycles. And if it's not positive within 35 cycles, it's negative. 
what they're telling us is that they're seeing these pop positive at 18 cycles, at 20 cycles. I mean, they're definitely positive. It's not getting all the way out to the 35. So right. I have a lot of faith in our test if the swab is done correctly. Wow. Mary Beth, thank you. That's very elucidating. And I think that'll be very good for a lot of people to hear and clear up a lot of the confusion that I'm hearing from people who get in touch with me. And I, that's why I wanted you and Susan here on the show to start to clarify some of this for my audience. Now, Susan, I wanted to ask you about the safety issues now. What have you learned and what do you think we can carry forward? Mary Beth also made a statement about what we need to do in the future, what the new normal needs to be, and whether coronavirus, whether COVID-19 keeps circulating back seasonally, we don't know what's going to be happening yet because this is such a novel experience for all of us. What, what do you think some of the new normals need to be and what would you like to carry forward from here? You know, I think there's a couple of things and, and we hearkened back to that um, AIDS, HIV discussion and yes. we, we had standard precautions came out of that whole experience. And I would have to say in recent years, we've gotten pretty lax. We've gotten lax about hand washing and, you know, we can make all kinds of, of um, conversations about we can treat infections and hand washing isn't so important. I think our new normal is back to basics. And I can't tell you how much I agree with Mary Beth saying, wash your hands and don't touch your face and think about where you're putting your hands and, and, um, and, and where, by the way, you're not smooching your, your saliva to wash something off and in the moment. I mean, just really stepping back. I think our new normal is awareness awareness of droplets of things that that pass from our speech for you know a couple of feet ahead of us and really thinking about what is that activity that puts us and others at risk and it's not um it is science and i'm going to absolutely agree that we should pay attention to the science and the expertise of people mom was right when she said wash your hands um, so it is it's still the case. And I think we shouldn't fight it anymore. We shouldn't justify it in our head and make ourselves just too smart about things. But to really step back and saying, it's the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to wear a mask when I should. And it's likely going to be in more settings than we used to in the past. And to wear... Um, to have good glove hygiene. So how many people wash their hands after they remove their gloves? This is basic, and it's something that, that we know we should do. We need to get back to it. I can't tell you the things that make me nervous when I see a mask or gloves discarded in a stairwell. I just want to twirl my head around like the exorcist and say, what are you thinking? Um, because we need to think about where we drop our stuff. So it's not just the droplets on the surfaces, but where do we drop our stuff? How do we take things off? We doff properly. We put things in containers. We think about that new normal is really about cleanliness and about thinking about our surfaces. We shouldn't leave a place that we don't wipe up after ourselves when we do some uh, activity. So I think for healthcare, that new normal is to both respect ourselves by doing the right thing and cleansing our hands and then leaving our workspace that we share with others clean when we leave it. And I think that becomes our new normal, that becomes our preventive nature and our respectful nature for our colleagues going forward. And I know that sounds simplistic, but I think it's the right thing to do for all of the other coronaviruses and neuro 
viruses and just stuff um, that, that we're at risk for, but really going forward and respecting the fact that the things we should make habit. Um, I remember when seatbelts were, oh, just something you thought to put on and now you feel naked without them. Our new normal is I don't leave a room without cleansing my hands. I don't finish an activity or start an activity without hand hygiene and hand hygiene when we're done and really thinking about the other guy. So I'm going to wear a mask sometimes to protect others from me. I shouldn't come to work sick. How can I, can I say that again? I should not come to work sick. I should think about respecting others and not share my germs. And I think that is going to become our new normal. And, and I'm going to say this as a nurse. We are tough on each other. Oh, I'm so brave. I come to work because I know people will work harder when I'm not here. Well, you know what? Don't infect me. I would rather work harder for shift than to share your germs. And and we have to make That's it. That's the nurse martyr syndrome yes. that I've spoken of over the years. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like I respect the fact that you don't want to make me sick. And I am willing to work harder for that. And I expect you to do the same for me. And we have to make it okay as a profession. We have to make it okay. Thank you. That is so helpful to hear. And I hope this will be heard and shouted from the rooftops. Now, I want to ask just a couple more questions as we wind down. I want to value both of your time and let you go. But I want to ask, I'm hearing mixed reports and mixed opinions about people are having various reactions around putting their eggs in the basket that summer is going to give us a big reprieve, but then this could come roaring back in the fall along with influenza or that humidity and heat together are where we're going to see the most decline and that in northern, drier climates where it doesn't get very hot for more than just three or four weeks like Holland or northern Germany or Minnesota. Do either of you have an opinion about what you as a health system might be expecting and preparing for in terms of these seasonal changes and what everyone seems to be conjecturing about what may happen? So this is one of those times when I truly wish I had a crystal ball. Um, oh, please, could you get one? Could you please get one, Mary? Um, so I, I do not expect this virus to go away. I wish it would prove me wrong because, again, be I mean, the, the other, you know, MERS and, and SARS, I mean, SARS basically, SARS-CoV-1 went away. MERS still is sometimes in Saudi Arabia, but not that common. So... The thing about this virus that I think is it's it's here to stay is it likes human beings too much. Darn it. Because it, with the others, and if we think about it, and it also likes to, it likes different parts of human beings too much. So the human coronaviruses that are around every single year, and we see them in the basically more in the wintertime. And it does have to do with humidity. Humidity, actually, viruses aren't as happy um, with, with humidity. Um, so, and when it's drier, your mucous membranes are drier, it tends to be more hospitable for those um, lovely little things to, <laughs> to grow. But the human coronaviruses that are always around, just like your upper respiratory tract, so your nose, your nasopharynx, the back of your throat. And then the SARS and the MERS, they actually didn't like that area so much. They liked your lungs. So that's why there were fewer cases that showed up because probably people weren't showing up with the upper respiratory, but then they had the lower pneumonia. This one likes both. And that's, what, that's what's driving us kind of crazy. And that's why I think it's going to become potentially a seasonal virus that we see with influenza 
my hope is that as we build up immunity, um, so as people have seen this, it might be less intense as we see, but you know, people have talked about, are we going to see a, a basically a, we had a huge spike, then we come back down, you know, like an up, down, upside down V, then we're going to come back up and go down. I mean, I totally expect a second wave. Again, I hope I'm wrong. But the intensity of it is, is the key question is, do we have a lot of people who are asymptomatic, who may be somewhat immune this, you know, when it, the second wave comes? Um, will we have a better handle on some of the antivirals? We are not going to have the vaccine. I mean, the vaccine is a year and a half plus out before we're going to see the vaccine. At least, right. I, I totally expect this to do that. I really pray it doesn't. So, and, and Keith, I would offer this as well. We're, we're prepping for this isn't going to go away. It's just a question of when. And I think it depends an awful lot beyond healthcare and treatment to how do we behave differently in a new normal world that we don't want to share coronavirus. So, you know, we can talk about the benefits of social distancing. There is no doubt that this nation and other nations who have taken these rather draconian actions about social distancing had a payoff. We didn't overwhelm our health system. And maybe we gave some opportunity for people to build up some immunity in, in those patients or those people that we didn't see symptoms. But if we go back to life as it was, without any sort of thought about how do we behave in public with each other, then we're going to see a rise again before we can get a, uh, a vaccine or some immunity that we understand. So the, the question is, what are we going to see and when? Not if we're going to see something. It, it's what is it, how is it going to look, and when? And can we change the way we behave in public settings to respect distance. My personal space has now gotten a little bigger in, in how I go out. Absolutely. But I, I think that the public recognizing that there are vulnerable people that we should think about and maybe we behave a little bit differently for the good of all will also have an effect on when we see this and, and how big um, that next wave is. Because I, I think it's pretty evident that we could have very much overwhelmed our entire health system across the United States if we didn't take some action, if, if there weren't actions taken um, to social distance, to understand the transmission, to run out of hand sanitizer because we are all sanitizing our hands, but soap <laughs> and water is wonderful. So all of those things. Yeah. Thank you. And, you know, where I feel hope as we wind down here, I feel hope in speaking with people like both of you who are speaking from evidence, you're speaking from common sense, you're being pragmatic and prudent, and going back to some of the basics that we really had dialed in in the 80s and 90s during the AIDS epidemic. And like you said, I think, Susan, I think you said how people have kind of gotten a little lax in these past years. And now we're, we're creating this new normal again out in the in the community and also in our healthcare system. So that's that's very encouraging to me. It's also encouraging to me that I didn't mention this to you both, but my brother is actually head of COVID-19 research at the Vice Institute at Harvard. And I'm getting a little bit of a insider's view of the research that's happening at the Vice Institute, which is a very cutting edge, almost like um, biotech 
organization within Harvard. And he's been telling me about how they're testing so many different drugs that are already FDA approved. And they're trying to see through assays what might show a little bit of promise that they can push through to another to clinical trials. So I'm encouraged by this belief in science. <laughs> and I know there are people out there who don't believe in science. We know that's a fact. And But I'm encouraged by this embracing of science and how the scientific community and the public health community, the epidemiologists, the virologists, and the ID specialists like Mary Beth are putting their heads together and really looking as deeply at this as we can. So I thank you very much for being here. This has been very enlightening and I think will also be somewhat comforting to some people who hear this interview. So I, I really thank you both and am greatly appreciative and please stay healthy yourselves and also your loved ones and colleagues. And thanks for this great, great work you're doing out in the world. Thanks for having us. We really enjoyed coming on to talk. It's always fun being with Sue. There you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. There'll be many more to come. And remember that the show notes can be found at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-9. We were joined by Susan Huerta, PhD, MSRN from Frater Medical College of Wisconsin. She is the Vice President of Enterprise Quality, Patient Safety and Performance Improvement. And we are also joined by Mary Beth Graham, MD, Professor of Medicine with tenure at MCW and the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control. So please, I hope you've uplifted, empowered, and encouraged from this episode. And please take inspired action in whatever way you see fit to educate, inform, and calm your friends, your family, your colleagues, and community members around you. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster, helping me spread the word by keeping you informed via our many online platforms. Mary Beth, thank you so much. And Susan Huerta, thank you also. Okay, everyone, stay safe, stay informed, be the nurse and healthcare professional who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico.